This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Matt Davis. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. And, um, hey, Matt. Matt, what are you doing? This is the part where you introduce yourself. Oh, oh, sorry. Uh, wait, we started? Are the mics on? Have we started? I've been going for like, yeah, like 30 seconds right now. Oh man, sorry. I was just totally zoning out, kind of daydreaming there. Yeah, you looked very restful. You were just kind of really zoned out, glazed over, not much going on there. A lot was going on, actually. What? What? My internal states were fluctuating quite a bit. I was daydreaming. Wait, so wait, a lot was going on? What are you talking about? So one could think that when a person's resting, that there's little or no brain activity. You did not look like there was much going on. Well, there's actually quite a bit going on. This was sort of first proposed by the inventor of the EEG, uh, Hans Berger. Uh, he used his new invention to measure electrical oscillations, and he showed that they were happening all the time, no matter whether a person was engaged in a task or resting. Uh, Later, people characterized different metabolic states and blood flow in the brain during rest and effortful thinking and found them to be pretty similar. So it does seem to be the case that when somebody is at rest, the brain is still pretty highly active. Okay, so... Why do we care? What's what's? Why should we want to know what a restful brain is doing? Well, I spoke today with Dr. Gagan Wig, who's an assistant professor at the University of Texas, and he is interested in that very question. He uses fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, along with other imaging techniques in humans to probe that question: What does the brain do at rest? Among, among other things, but we mostly talked about what the brain is doing at rest. What will that help us do by figuring that out? So you can measure, uh, you can measure the correlation of activity between certain brain areas, and that'll tell you some interesting things about their functional properties and about their anatomical properties, connectivity and so on. What seems to happen at rest is this thing is activated called this, this so-called default mode network. It is a, a, a set of brain regions that is highly correlated when you're not focused on the outside world, as I was at the beginning of this episode, <laughs> uh, such as daydreaming or mind-wandering. Um, it, and it actually seems to be deactivated during specific tasks like a working memory task or a visual attention task wait so when you're are you saying that when i'm contemplating or when i'm like in my own head thinking about things that that would be a unique brain state and will tell us exactly does that help us understand what thinking or you know that sort of internal dialogue is about perhaps i don't want to get too deep into it before the episode but it, it really is related to when somebody is remembering or thinking about the past or the future. It's not and not engaged in the external world. Dr. Wig looks at this network, among some others, there's other sub-networks in the brain that are related to other tasks. And he looks at their correlated activity to identify these sub-networks. And it turns out some properties of these sub-networks, they have interesting changes 
as a human ages across time. So we'll talk about the particular results in the episode. Okay. So how the brain changes over time and yeah. at rest and throughout our lives. Are you ready? I'm excited and perked, you might say. Well, I am certainly perked as well. All right. Let's get to the episode. Perk up them cochlea. Oh, yeah, do that too. as much as I used to yeah. during my downtime because I use that downtime to listen to myself. Which yes. Is, which is different than I, what it used to be like 10 years ago where I'd be consumed yeah. by music. Yeah. It's like a soundtrack for life. Right? Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, you know, part of me is, has angst about that because now my lab tells me to go on Spotify and listen to bands I'd never even heard of. Of course. So I'm like, oh, okay, I'm definitely out of the loop. Yeah. The part of me is like, well, maybe it's a good thing because maybe I'm evolving and maybe it's Indeed. good to be able to listen to yourself. Uh, is that sort of like a meditative thing or something or... No, even I mean, a mindful thing, you know. Yeah, I think yeah. it's become that. I mean, I I've tried mindfulness and I've tried some forms of meditation, but this is more driving home. I used to crank up the volume, you know, and like it'd get me jazzed up about something. Yeah. Uh, but now I like I kind of just like silence and just thinking about the day. Sure. Does that reflect what you ask participants to, to do when when you're just measuring the brain at rest? Do you tell them to not think about something or what is that? What what are you? Yeah, that's a great question. We don't give any overt instructions other than fixate and stay awake. Right? Yeah. Those are the two things that you want to maintain. And that's, that's been an area of inquiry, right? Like what are people doing? We say rest, but we're not, we're not sleeping, certainly, unless you've got a non-complacent subject. But uh, what are they doing? Yeah. And I think different people do different things when they're doing nothing. Yeah, absolutely. And that variability is important. It's difficult to measure because it involves things that cognitive psychology or psychology realized were difficult to measure, you know, hundreds of years ago, like this idea of introspection, how mm-hmm. do you introspect and report that in a valid way? So uh, yeah, I think we're kind of getting at similar things now, like, okay, well, what are people thinking about? And does it matter? Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe as long as you have enough variability and you have population averages, there's, you know, certainly you can pull out effects. Yeah. What you're looking and, for. and then the other aspect is, well, maybe thinking about things don't actually change the nature of these signals we're looking at because of the time frequency. So what information can you pull out from the brain based on measuring it at rest? Yeah. I mean, this, that's a key question in neuroscience, especially in systems and code in neuroscience, because the brain is not always idle. It's never idle, right? Yeah. Arguably. And there's information processing taking different forms and in mediating different aspects of what allows us to react and process and consolidate. We're starting to scrape the surface as to what we think we can reveal. We've been pretty conservative in our approach. We think that there's levels of organization that can be revealed at rest, and those need not coincide with the types of brain imaging that you typically do to measure task-evoked activity. Sure. But uh, what they do allow us to do is understand the underlying organization and the absence of overt demands. It's almost like understanding the scaffold on which the brain operates when it's engaged in more goal-directed behaviors. Yeah. But uh, that's a fundamental question, right? What defines a brain area? Like, what are the properties that... What define a brain area? Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is this is the parcellation problem, right? What mm-hmm. defines a thing in the brain? Um, with neurons, 
if we had the ability to dive into the cerebral cortex, we'd be able to identify neurons. Those are definable by their anatomical features. But uh, with the brain area, that's that's a murky topic, right? Is there boundaries between brain areas? For us, the working hypothesis is that distinct brain areas should have distinct aspects of function, uh, architectonics, connectivity, and uh, topography in some cases. And uh, as I mentioned, not all brain areas are going to have distinguishing characteristics for each of those features, um, and not each of those features is going to be equally successful at parcelating. But this is a fundamental problem in neuroscience, right? How do we define the units of organization in order to understand what those units are doing? And when you're measuring the brain, what what information are you using to pull out to define those boundaries? Yeah, so in terms of our active experiment experimentation, uh, we're pulling out signals uh, that are present uh, in the resting state. So in yeah. the absence of overt task demands, um, what is the nature of the time series uh, at rest when a subject is staring at a fixation cross here? And we believe that there's information in there because we yeah. can identify locations where functional correlations transition, uh, which we think reflect meaningful transitions that respect functional distinctions between locations in the brain. So that's the principal tool we're using and measure we're using. And then the key question is, does that line up with anything else? Does it line up with measures of architectonics? Does it measure line up with measures of uh, function in the context of a task? And that's the sets of litmus tests that you want to employ, right, to determine whether or not Certainly. the thing you're doing is is valid and worth pursuing. Yeah. So classically, would people treat what's happening at rest sort of like as noise and, and that would be subtracted from your typical measure? Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, you know, that this is, this is, of course, one way of what we're using the signal to yeah. define the boundaries between distinct units of information processing that we think are present. The next step then that we've been using is taking those units and understanding how they interact at rest. Yeah. And we think there's information there. Yeah. yeah. What kind of organization do you find in the brain, sort of the broad, you know, organization? Like, what do you call those networks and what do they mean? Yeah, that's a great question. So the brain, much like other systems in technology and sociology, is non-random. Yeah. There's organization to it. Uh, at the level of areas, uh, we can quantify that organization mathematically uh, using formal tools. And that's one of the appeals of network sciences. We can use these tools that have been generated and developed by uh, other scientists in other domains and we can start to have that conversation as to what characteristics of the brain network are present and what do these tools allow us to actually obtain from that level of organization mm -hmm. so when we've applied these tools to the brain we're finding that the brain is organized into distinct modules or yeah. subsystems and at rest, it looks like those subsystems actually respect what we think of as broad systems. Uh, mm -hmm. and those systems likely mediate domains of cognitive processing. Um, yeah. Now, the difficult thing is labeling those processes, right? Sure. So in the visual system, that might be a bit easier because we know that there's certain regions of the brain or areas of the brain that come together to mediate visual processing and discrimination. But uh, when it comes to some of these other locations and sets of locations, that's where it's a bit difficult. Cause we might not have, we, we don't probably have the ontology yet to actually describe what these systems do, mm -hmm. uh, which makes it, a, you know, there's a struggle because you have to understand something, you might have to label it. But we're taking a very kind of bottom-up approach. Let's understand this organization and then figure out what the organization is yeah. mediating. 
Yeah, sure. What are some of the categories that we see in some of these bigger subnetworks? What do we, what do we call those categories? Yeah, so I think uh, I mean this is this is an interesting one, right? This labeling issue because you yeah. ask different researchers and they're going to call it different things. Certainly, but there seem to be systems that mediate uh, executive control functions. Uh, yeah. So maintaining task set, uh, error related processing. Uh, there seems to be uh, sets of regions that come together to form subsystems that allow visual spatial attention. Uh, sets that mediate uh, sensory motor operations. There's an auditory system, there's a visual system. Uh, and then there's a few that have kind of generated more speculation, right? So the default system being a, a big one. Yeah, uh, what is that, that? I keep on hearing, <laughs> you know, I'm like, what does that mean? Is that? Yeah, so that's, there's there's like, a, there's a danger there because the definition of the default system came from some classic studies that looked at metabolism of the brain and the absence of task. Okay. Uh, but then, and also the nature of deactivation in the context of a task. And those really serve to define um, these sets of regions. And it turns out those are also present at rest. There's a danger because the default system doesn't necessitate that we're always using it to kind of engage in restful processes. It seems to be a set of regions that are correlated at rest, you know, where there is some convergence of the types of things that those regions are doing. Uh, episodic memory being one of them in terms of autobiographical retrieval. Things that are more socially oriented seem to be hitting the default network. Uh, and so they're kind of operations that bring about lots of speculation and enthusiasm because they seem very human. Yeah, yeah. So you wouldn't be sort of controversial to identify what a default network would be in a primate, non-human primate, or even a rodent if you put them in, you know, mm-hmm. these various imaging imaging things. Yeah, because I think, again, it's, it's a bit of a misnomer. Yeah, right? So yeah. default implies that we're, uh, or, you know, quite literally defaulting to this thing in the absence of doing something else. But the definition of the default network is a set of regions that are usually yeah. distributed uh, that can be localized uh, that actually have a facial features. So certainly posterior cingulate cortex, medial frontal cortex and so yeah. forth. And what about the relationship between these subnetworks, specifically how they're connected within and how they're sort of segregated? What what have you found out about the importance of that? Yeah, so this is something that came out of network sciences in a formal way, right? So yeah. I say that networks are organized into communities or subnetworks or systems, uh, and that necessitates certain features. So connectivity within subnetworks uh, seems to be very high, and connectivity between them is, is, is lower. And that's mm-hmm. what allows for the segregation, right? And yeah. you get functional specialization. So in the young adult brain, what we find is that you get these distinct segregated subnetworks that have high connectivity within systems and sparser connectivity between. But with increasing age, did you ask what age there? Uh, I would love to hear about age, <laughs> even if I didn't. <laughs> I was going to get there. So. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I guess I can say that, you know, that, that's a mathematical definition, right? This idea of segregated subnetworks. And, yeah. uh, and it's important for us because it turns out that that maps onto our distinctions of functional systems as well. So mm-hmm. this mathematical framework of interrogating sets of relationships has mapped onto our current understanding of cognitive operations in the brain. Yeah. So that tells us we're onto something. I think that there's like there's a fine balance there, right? So this idea of segregation, you don't want things to be too segregated because then you get disconnection of subsystems and you don't want it to be, there. you don't want there to be too little segregation mm-hmm. um, because then you get this blurring across networks. And, Certainly. And I think that's something that the brain uh, has optimized in some ways for certain individuals and, you know, the healthy years of their life. And the question is, does that change as a consequence of, uh, developmental or developmental processes or age or disease states. Mm-hmm. 
And does it? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So in our hands right now, it looks like there are stark differences as an individual, as we interrogate individuals across the healthy adult lifespan. Yeah. Um, These sub-networks, while they're segregated in young adulthood, they seem to desegregate with older age. Mm -hmm. The connections between subsystems, uh, as defined at rest, seem to increase with increasing age. And that results in decreases in this measure of segregation or decreases in modularity or however you want to define it according to this framework. What about hemispheric differences? Um, Was that reflected at all in any of the data you showed? Yeah, that's a good question. We haven't found any large hemispheric differences. Um, Mm -hmm. There's certainly... Or connectivity between Yeah, there's certainly asymmetries um, in the patterns of connectivity, but those asymmetries didn't uh, pan out for us in terms of these age-related questions Mm -hmm. um, with this population. Yeah, cool. For a lot of the data you already talked about, um, what sort of techniques are you using and do you employ any other techniques in your labs? So primarily right now we're looking at correlation of time series in the resting state. That's the principle Yeah, as technique. measured through... Um, using fMRI. Okay, yeah. yeah. We're also starting to look a lot at the neuroanatomy defined by MRI uh, to try to understand what is the uh, anatomical backbone on which these relationships persist. So are there certain features of your uh, brain morphometry, your gray matter, your white matter, that might allow us to understand why your brain network differs relative to someone else in your, you know, in your age range? Yeah. And is technology helping us answer these questions? Like, are we getting better and better with our MRIs and our fMRIs in terms of resolution? And we're able to ask questions that we weren't able to ask before? I think the thing that's the thing that we're really seeing is that the sophistication of the analyses and mm-hmm. the understanding of uh, sources of noise and variability that are of non-interest are we're yeah. becoming more sensitive to those things. Sure. So uh, our methods for data analysis, I think, are, are are what's really kind of driving the bulk of what we're doing, at least in in my research program. Yeah, yeah. computational power as well. I'm sure right. just right. having the raw you know, output to do these more sophisticated analyses right, right. and whatnot. So you get larger computer clusters, you can do more powerful analyses on larger data sets, you can incorporate more subjects, you can start doing transformations in the data sets that, you know, yeah. supercomputers uh, needed to bring, uh, you needed supercomputers, you know, 10 years ago for, mm-hmm. you know. And so when you're doing fMRI, what sort of resolution do you have and how does that relate to what you're measuring in the brain? So at this point, I mean, this is being pushed on as well, right? So the resolution limits of fMRI, mm-hmm. um, we work on voxel sizes, which are three-dimensional pixels that are roughly three cubic millimeters. Yeah. And that's that's typical for many studies that are currently being done and that imposes limitations on the types of questions we could ask. So we can't, we don't measure neurons. Mm-hmm. Uh, we measure groups of related neurons that uh, constitute brain areas. And that limitation, too, I mean, there, that's where the hardware and the methods are being developed to get us lower and lower. And that, too, is an area that's seeing a lot of progress in terms of the resolution limits. So um, we're getting to a point where, you know, we're starting to look at smaller and smaller things. And you had some experience working on the Human Connectome project. Mm-hmm. Could you talk briefly about uh, what the goals of that project are sort of broadly, you know, what what information about the brain that we've discovered from that? Yeah, I mean, that was a, it's a it's a large scale effort at acquiring data from multiple modalities from a broad range of subjects yeah. that uh, were healthy young adults. Uh, there's a genetic component to it, allowing us to understand genetic factors that might play into brain organization. But really, the mandate there was to try to collect um, multiple modalities that would allow us to understand organization, connectivity, anatomy in the same subjects that would allow 
cross-subject comparisons uh, and analysis of individual differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's it's it's an exciting project because they've really pushed the hardware for that so that we can get better data, and it's publicly available. So that kind of allows us to all play with the data. Yeah, yeah. You see fit. Yeah. Yeah. And what about DTI, mm-hmm. uh, the technique? Um, could you describe what that is and what kind of information about the brain you get from that? So DTI uh, relies on the passage uh, of water molecules okay. and uh, how they pass through different tissue types. It turns out that in white matter, uh, the passage of water molecules uh, is is less restricted uh, mm-hmm. along its principal direction as opposed to gray matter that's got lots of cells. Yeah, and, and so white matter components. is the connections between. Right. Yeah. So um, using certain imaging sequences, you can gain sensitivity to the ease of that passage of water, and that gives you some information as to the underlying organization of the white matter. Yeah. So the next step then is to understand uh, the nature of the tracks, the white matter tracks that connect discrete computational regions, which is the gray matter neurons. Mm-hmm. Do you see any technologies emerging that you would be really excited about to apply in your research or you think will be beneficial to at least your domain of research? You know, I'm more excited about applying this framework to large problems in the clinical domain and uh, yeah. and in, in other domains of neuroscience that need some need some traction. Certainly. Um, you know, what are examples? So that? in yeah. psychiatry, of course, we're, we're met with these uh, issues of responsivity to drugs. So we're really interested in understanding whether or not you can use measures of network connectivity to uh, understand and predict responsivity. And that's one broad domain that we've, we've started to think about deeply. Yeah. So it's the applications of these tools that leverage uh, complex patterns to either predict or understand the nature of deficits. Certainly. I guess moving a little bit in a different direction, but was there a particularly salient moment in your life that um, you felt set you down the path of science? Um, sort of how did you start on this journey? Um, yeah, my, my, my dad's an engineer. Yeah. Um, my mother was a, was a teacher and now she runs a daycare. Uh, so they're certainly oriented towards the sciences, you know, either directly or indirectly. For me, it was, it was much more gradual, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was on a path through undergrad that was probably typical for many undergrads where you're majoring in multiple things, trying to figure out what you want to do. And uh, I was pre-med, I was pre-law. Uh, you know, I made, minored in commerce. So I thought I wanted to be an accountant at one point. I liked the structure of like, you know, accounting and numbers and sure. how it all added up. If, if you were a good accountant. Um, <laughs> and along the way, you know, I was engaged in a lab and do, in a research program uh, in a biopsychology lab where we were studying rodent behavior using a, a model of epilepsy, um, which I didn't gravitate towards specifically, but I started to realize I loved the scientific process and that process of figuring out how to figure out the unknown. And that really pushed me to like consider science as a vocation and as a, as a, as a pursuit. Cognitive neuroscience was, it was in early days, but imaging and accessible imaging using fMRI was starting to starting to be a, a, a reality for many institutions. So uh, yeah, you know when I when I considered graduate school and was given an opportunity to join a graduate program where they had an fMRI scanner, right, this multi million dollar piece of equipment that could peer into your into your brain, mm-hmm. uh, I felt like that's something I wanted to pursue. Sure. Was there? How did that feel the first time you were in control of this, this crazy <laughs> machine? You, you know, like, right, yeah, did it feel to, like some science fiction thing? I was expecting to take off. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, or 
It's pretty humbling, right? So yeah. I think that opportunity is is was one which I think has to humble you when you're like, wow, I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing something that ten years ago was it wasn't science fiction, but it certainly wasn't thought of as being something that was going to be accessible. That's just the nature of technology. And now we're at a point where we've we've learned some things using non-invasive imaging and we can generate hypotheses that I think are reasonable and I think we're starting to ask interesting questions and that have relevance to um, not only our scientific pursuits but also uh, public knowledge and awareness and uh, hopefully clinical practice. Would you um, encourage anybody if they had the opportunity to get their brain scanned either functionally or structurally just to just to you know, just to look at it and see what you know, reflect on it. Like I don't know, you know, like this is me. Introspect. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, would I encourage someone? Of course, I would. There's, there's, yeah. uh, you know, there's participate in your studies. Perhaps. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> there's, uh, there's, uh, there's minimal risk with MRI-based technologies, and uh, I think any opportunity to engage in science uh, allows you to decide for yourself what the value of it is, and I think it's, science is extremely valuable. Public engagement is something that's kind of bi-directional, right? So us as scientists need to engage with the public to convey um, the relevance of what we're doing. But I think the engagement has to come in the other direction too, where it's, you know, the public needs to engage uh, to at least give some of these pursuits a chance and gain an understanding of why you're reporting on this, subjecting people to these things in the scanner and uh, you're making them stare at a plus sign. What is it that what does that mean? Uh, what does it do to you? Yeah. When you design your studies, do you make sure to include them in on the science a bit, like maybe at the end of this, uh, at the end of the study? Yeah. yeah, we do, in so much as it's possible. Um, yeah. Of course, certain you know, there's certain experiments that where you um, the process of disclosure, the full details of the experiment are there's some restrictions until the experiment's completed. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's and that's that's exciting when uh, someone asks you lots of questions. You know that they're engaged. Uh, you know if they're a young student, uh, you know that there might be a chance where they want to participate as an experimenter themselves so that's uh certainly rewarding yeah definitely are you able to maintain any hobbies outside neuroscience research and now as as professors and grad students we're all super busy but yeah 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 <laughs> uh yeah i mean uh you know i do the, the kind of nerdy things that probably most academics are assumed to do i read a lot but that, that's a hobby right certainly uh, non of course uh, you know not necessarily just uh, non-fiction uh, I travel a lot yeah um, so that's that's a big one that allows me to kind of understand people in a way that's not restricted to an MR scanner right? yeah so social interactions is the often neglected form of experimenting or or observation yeah uh, and not limited to Facebook so <laughs> actually meeting people and talking to them and listening to them yeah and, yeah, yeah. Uh, doing that in different com- cultures is, is definitely rewarding what what sort of things are you reading nowadays? Like what, any particular authors or or um, subject matters? Ooh, any particular. So in general, I've been reading a lot of historical fiction. Yeah, uh, I like period pieces. Uh, I think there too, you get an opportunity to experience a culture in a different time, right? So even if it's your own culture, your own what you perceive to be something that's similar to how you experienced it, but in a different time, is kind of like traveling to a different place. So I, uh, that's that's been the bulk of most of my reading lately. Yeah, I think that's great. Thank you. Awesome. Thank Appreciate you. it. And we're good. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. 
If you would like to learn more about the science or scientists that you heard on today's episode, head on over to our website, brainpodcast.com. You can also follow us at Brain Podcast on Twitter, or you can also check us out on Facebook. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really love to hear what you think about it. So go on over to iTunes and leave us a ranking or a review. We read and really appreciate all the reviews that we've gotten so far. The music that you heard on today's episode was by the band Moe Maguru, and you can check out their music at moemaguru.bandcamp.com. We'll leave a link to their music on our website. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.